Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Shane, I have to say, I got when your when the day your book came out. I think it was September 9th, I you know I got downloaded to my Kindle around midnight. I woke up around four and around and I started reading it. And by six a.m., I was already writing you and asking if you could come onto my podcast because I was so impressed by your book. Your book's called Smart Cuts. It's Shane Snow that I'm talking to right now. You're uh, the chief content officer at Contently. Um, but I really want to talk about your book, Smart Cuts. Is that okay with you? Well, I'm really flattered. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very flattered, and uh, and thank you. I mean, and essentially, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously Smart Cuts is a combination of the words smart and shortcuts. And you give example after example after example after example of people who have, as you say, hacked the ladder. They've hacked the traditional... Um, step-by-step approach to success or they hack the 10,000 hour rule where you think you need to have 10,000 hours to sort of call yourself a success at something. Um, and, and you gave a really interesting example towards the beginning, which while it doesn't seem to be related to entrepreneurship, it's kind of a fascinating fact and it is, uh, related. So you pointed out how the average starting age of a president is younger than the average starting age of a senator, which seems unobvious because it, it sort of seems on the road to president, you need to be like a mayor, a congressman, a senator, then a president. But you sort of showed that exactly. presidents kind of hacked the system a little bit and skipped that ladder. Yeah, well, the thing that I explore throughout the whole book is this idea of, uh, you know, there's lots of books that will tell you about how success was achieved. I was interested in rapid success. How do the people who beat the expectations so dramatically or who make breakthroughs or change the game, how do they do it? So I was really curious when I came across this data about the U.S. presidents that not only do they get to the top faster than sort of their peers that are climbing the ladder the traditional way, that are following the great American success advice, right? Like pay your dues, like work hard, ladder up slowly, slowly. Uh, But not only do presidents not do that, but actually the best presidents tend to have the most unconventional career paths. They, they tend to do all sorts of things before they get into politics and skip mucking around in Congress for 30 years. And, uh, and so there's something about that that I think speaks to what's wrong with the 
typical advice these days about how to be successful. What, what is the typical advice that you're referring to? Well, there, there's lots of things that you hear, right? Like your, your college counselor tells you, and this is kind of what I try to explore throughout the book, uh, your college advisor, your high school counselor will tell you, you need to get a job, get an entry-level place, and then work your way up slowly, pay your dues, get experience. Every job application, you know, one of the first things is X years of experience. You know, you need to spend time doing this for so long before you can get to X point. Um, kind of that paying dues mentality. There's others, you know, that I explore, like it's not what you know, it's who you know, and in some cases of very massive success, that's not true at all. Uh, but with the president, it really is this conventional idea of you start as a state senator, become a congressman, become a senator, then, you know, majority leader, then vice president, then president. It's, you know, the house of cards thing, like you, in a Machiavellian way, <laughs> work your way up the ladder. Uh, and that's what they tell you to do, you know, in any career, whether it's, you know, for me as a journalist, get a job as a fact checker and eventually after 20 years become, you know, the columnist uh, or, you know, inside of a, a company, if you want to be a CEO, what you see is the ones who get there, the youngest and the fastest tend to circumvent that in some way. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, probably Barack Obama is a great example. Like he was a state senator and then suddenly he was president. Right. Yeah. And he, you know, he's an interesting case because I think, you know, history will, you know, a few years from now, like the verdict will really be out on him. But when you look at other young presidents, uh, you see this similar pattern. But one of the interesting things is some of the oldest presidents we've had actually have very little political experience, too, and, and were ranked very well. So the, the ones who skew the average age, you know, that starting age of president is 55, the starting age of a senator is 57. The ones who skew the age up are actually the old guys that spent a lot of time in the military or even, you know, Reagan, he's the oldest president. He was an actor and then he was the governor for a very brief amount of time. And the president, you see these people gain leadership experience and credibility and skills and then move over laterally to this job that, uh, you know, part of the reason I think that these unconventional people make such good presidents is the same reason why at what makes anyone a good leader or actually anyone a good problem solver, which is the ability to do what psychologists call is lateral thinking, which is to reframe problems, to attack problems sideways like a computer hacker. As a president, you're sitting in a room, you know, and, and the people come in to talk to you about nuclear proliferation, and then the people come in and talk to you about the economy, and then they come in and talk about the farm bill, and you have to be the guy who absorbs all this information, takes advice, has to change your mind, has to learn stuff very quickly and be flexible, and there's something about being a career politician and spending 30, 40 years learning how to be a great uh, office campaigner uh, that makes you actually kind of bad at, uh, at that lateral thinking by the time you get there. Uh, in, in the book, I talk about a few presidents that, that are terrible after spending 40 years in, in Congress for exactly that reason. Right. So you mentioned Andrew Johnson. Um, as a case of someone who went the, the kind of career path, and then, of course, he's the, the first president to be impeached. Right, right. He was, he was a disaster. And, and it was because he, he got there and he said, I earned this. I paid my dues. I have the experience, so we're going to do it my way. Uh, well, it turns out innovation doesn't happen when you say that. And, you know, whether it's in business or in politics, progress doesn't happen if you, you stay stuck on you know, sort of one way of thinking, which ends up being the reason that's the first chapter is that ends up being the theme of the book is that anytime you have rapid success or breakthroughs, it's because someone has broken the rules 
or change the assumptions or change the, the conventions of what everyone else is doing. Well, I, I want to skip back and forth to several different examples in the book. Um, you talk about one of my favorite YouTubers, uh, Michelle Fon. She has over 6 million YouTube subscribers. Her, her, her makeup company now, because of her YouTube channel, is probably valued at around 30 or 40 million. I have no idea. Uh, but, but she's, she's huge. And you talk about her success. She started making YouTube videos at the age of 16. Uh, what was, what was her lateral thinking? What, what happened there? Well, so the thing I was exploring in that chapter is the myth of overnight success. Uh, and also the idea that, uh, momentum in business or, or in anything really can be is more powerful predictor of success than sort of absolute success. Basically, you, you make bets on the fast risers more than you make bets on the people who are already at the top. Um, and so Michelle's story is really interesting because in the same month, she had a viral YouTube hit, which is, you know, everyone's sort of dream if they're in the video world and, you know, every business and ad company is saying, like, let's make something viral. So she had that happen to her. Lightning struck. In the she, same she, month, she made, and just to be specific, she made a, a, a makeup tutorial for how you can look like uh, Lady Gaga, I think, in the video Bad Romance. Exactly. Yeah. So it was brilliant timing for her because that video was blowing up. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she made this makeup video and it's good. It's real good. In the same month, so, the so, double so rainbow So this guy, is an example also okay. of like newsjacking. So she took like uh, yeah. uh, uh, someone who was already popular and did something on top of that. And and even though this is you don't use this example, you talk about platforms in another chapter. She kind of piggybacked off of the Lady Gaga platform that Lady Gaga had already built. Oh yeah, yeah. And I by the time I ended the book, I realized that I'd referenced Lady Gaga in some side web like ten times. Uh, I think there's a lesson there. <laughs> well, Lady Gaga is uh, someone who hacked the system, but we can talk about her later. But I, I want I want to hear about Michelle Fon too. So yeah, so Michelle is so she's very smart, but she grew up very poor, and her hero was uh, Bob Ross, and uh, the makeup tutorialist, uh, not makeup tutorialist, the, the the painter, and she wanted to become a makeup tutorialist in the style of Bob Ross. So she started making these videos for her friends. She posted them on YouTube. Then she had this viral hit with the Lady Gaga video, and. In the, in the chapter, I compare her to the double rainbow guy who had his viral hit where he, you know, cries about these two rainbows in his backyard. And that thing blew up and went everywhere at the same time. They both have over 30 million views to these YouTube videos in the same month, very different videos. Uh, and I look at what happens to him, the double rainbow guy, and what happens to Michelle. The double rainbow guy basically ends up trying to recreate the magic of his double rainbow moment post 1,300 more videos of him sort of marveling at ducks and swimming in water holes, and, and it's just not that funny, and he doesn't capture that again. He tries really hard to do what most one-hit wonders do, which is sort of recapture that same exact moment. And Michelle, as you said, she parlayed her viral success into a very successful YouTube channel. She has over a billion views now, I think, and, uh, and a business that has hundreds of thousands of paid subscribers and a makeup line and a production company and... She's on her way to becoming the next Elizabeth Arden or Martha Stewart, or she, and she's a very smart businesswoman. So, what she did. But, but by the way, can I ask? And you, you don't mention this in the in the book. But did she she started college? But did she get a college degree? I don't think she finished. No, I don't think so. I don't um, think she did either. I, and I actually she, applaud her for that. So, so I just I just was curious. Yeah, uh, she and she got her. I mean, she barely got to college because. 
her mom was broke and some uncle gave her mom money for furniture. Her mom gave the money to her to go to community college. And, uh, and she got a free laptop and some drawing that Apple was doing. And so all these things fell into place that, you know, she, she feels very blessed, she says, uh, for those things that led up to it. But what she did that the double rainbow guy didn't do and that a lot of viral successes don't do is she actually spent years and months crafting her, uh, her craft and her content. So by the time she posted this Lady Gaga video, she actually had 53 other very good uh, YouTube makeup tutorials that just very few people had seen. And so when the viral video hit, uh, first of all, she actually, the, the virality was not a mistake. So what she did is she actually was studying the YouTube homepage algorithm for months. And with every video that she had been doing lately, she tried to, like you said, newsjack, she tried to find a trend that she could hitch her wagon to so that she could get some momentum that was already out there. And then she would post at a certain time on Friday because she realized that if you get enough views on a Friday, well, you get enough views, you get to the homepage, but they don't update the homepage on the weekends. So she would get all of her friends and kind of anyone that was following on her blog and say, please watch this video right now, 4 p.m. on Friday or whatever time it was, so that she could get to the front page and then it would last all weekend and get way more exposure than, uh, than anyone else's video. So she engineered this, uh, this visibility and she would do this every time until finally this one happened to be the one that uh, BuzzFeed saw. So BuzzFeed posted, wrote about it, uh, and then a million people read BuzzFeed, and so a million people saw it, and then they posted about it at the Lady Gaga blogs and the, you know, the makeup blogs, and suddenly she had this flood of attention. And when the people saw the video, they then, you know, most people click away or YouTube suggests something next. YouTube suggested her other 53 videos that were actually really good. So suddenly she had people consuming her content over and over and over again. And this backlog that she built over the last few years uh, got people hooked. And so she had these so, people, so, you know, it takes a while. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. P people accuse me of interrupting when maybe yeah. you were about to say, like, a, a super gem. So, so please brilliant. go ahead and then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll respond. No, no worries. Uh, so what she did, though, is she was... And she talks about this, uh, talked about this to me, how most YouTube YouTubers have their moment of success and then they just can't capitalize. She realized that she had a, a window while people were watching her other videos, while they're subscribing, for her to up the ante. So she went and she, you know, invested in a better camera and started uh, hitting up, you know, makeup companies to try and get spokesmanships and all of this. And she basically took the success and ran with it, actually in kind of a sideways way, rather than doing the same thing over and over and over again, like most people do, like the double rainbow guy did. She tried to find a way to use that as a springboard to the next level. Um, so there, there's a lot to her story, but she was basically the moral of the story is overnight success was not overnight and it was actually very planned. Um, and she was just waiting for her moment so, to strike. Okay. So I want to, I want to go over that plan for a second. So it seems like she combined several different aspects of, of what you recommend in your book and she's not the only example but I, I wanted to focus on this for a second so she hacked the ladder in the sense that she she had a deep understanding of how YouTube worked the, the platform that she was working on she knew how to not quite game the system because that almost sounds like cheating but she knew how to work very well within the system and whereas many people don't um, mm -hmm. and then she she used multiple platforms so YouTube is a trusted source with billions of users. It's actually the third largest search engine, just the YouTube search engine alone. It's the third largest search engine in the world. And she, um, it sounds like on multiple videos, 
she was trying to news Jack and, you know, by basically piggybacking a trend and making and combining her expertise in makeup with that trend. And over time, of course, she got good at doing these videos and so on. Uh, and uh, finally, you 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 have a later chapter called the F word, but I, I don't like to use the word failure. She experimented with many videos. Most of them, I think she used to, she had 53 videos. Most of them did not get uh, a lot of views, but you wouldn't call those failures because then the 54th made her the quote unquote overnight success. She just had to keep doing it. And, and, and that was kind of the secret formula. Yeah, exactly. And, and the failure thing too, she was very, I mean, she's kind of a ruthless business person, actually, like it packaged in like a very small, like cute frame, which I think has done really well for her, but she was ruthless about testing everything. And the F word chapter, I don't know if you want to talk about that later, but really the, the real F word that she adhered to is feedback. Every setback became feedback, not failure. And, and so she, with every video, was sort of prodding the edges of, uh, of YouTube and what she could do, um, which led up to, well, and, you know, when she had her viral success, part of the reason why it worked is because she had figured it out for many, many videos before that then kept people going and got people interested in her and not just in her video. But it's interesting to then analyze what happens next, because it's not like she's, you know, there's a lot of ways to interpret the success of that video. So it's not like she said, oh, I should just do makeup videos about Lady Gaga. And that's going to be the niche that I carve out. She used that to propel success in different ways. So what was taking it to the next level for her and why? Why didn't she hone in on Lady Gaga as the as the secret of her success? How did she kind of take it to the next level? Well, she had a, a big vision, I think, of, uh, of what she wanted to do in the first place, which I think is crucial. Um, she didn't want to be just a YouTube makeup tutorialist. She wanted to empower a lot of people to feel better about themselves. Like, she had that kind of higher mission. And so she saw the Lady Gaga thing, and she sees, you know, makeup artistry as a way, as a vehicle to do that. So she, in lieu of just doing more Lady Gaga videos or more celebrity videos, which she certainly does, you know, from time to time, she said, how can I turn this into a proper production company that, uh, that could be, you know, how can I up the production value so this could be on TV or so that I could get me on TV uh, or so that I can, she has a book coming out this fall. How can I parlay this into other media or into other kind of categories and take it out of the amateur zone um, and into something that actually can empower people? And that's why she ended up starting this company, Ipsy, which is sort of like a Birchbox competitor. Um, for basically makeup and beauty samples subscription. Um, she started that as a way to, you know, her mission is not to create, you know, videos that make her ad money. Her mission is to help people feel better about themselves. And, and so she was looking at her next ladder up uh, from that lens of how can I take this thing and sort of step sideways to these other ways where I can accomplish this vision of mine. I think that's really important. Like, so she wasn't like, um, overwhelmed by the success of this one video, she stuck within. She she kept her her larger vision, and and you know you you mentioned sort of ten x thinking in the book. Like she had she she had a way of looking at this one video as being part of a vision that was really ten times bigger than this video. Like she wanted to inspire people. She wanted to create a media company. She wanted to create a makeup line, and it sounds like she had that vision from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the 10x thinking is one of the 
I mean, since the book came out, it's one of the things that has been talked about the most and that I get the most feedback, you know, when I, I give speeches about is that there's, there's something powerful about that that I think is vastly overlooked. And when we set goals, right, we always talk about, we have this argument all the time, you know, and in, in my company, should we set a realistic goal that makes us feel good or should we set an outrageous goal that stretches ourselves? There's something about setting the absolutely outrageous goal. The 10x thinking comes from Google X and their, their crazy projects. Um, there's something about setting that that on on a number of academic levels uh, does improve our chances of success and does help us uh, get to that lateral thinking, but also uh, gets us the kind of support that you need to uh, and and I guess the you know the the means to get through the setbacks and the and the failures big and small to get there. And I think that she doesn't articulate it like that uh, in the way that, you know, the Google X folks or Elon Musk or some of these other people do, but she definitely, I think that is a root cause to what's helped her accelerate uh, versus kind of just be, build a nice YouTube uh, channel. You know, as an aside, you mentioned 10X thinking comes from uh, Google X, which is run by Astro Teller. Um, yeah. And I was just, which is, by the way, an incredible name, Astro Teller, but I was oh, just gosh, going, yeah. I, I Oh, sorry. Say that again. No, I was just saying, oh, gosh, yeah, that is he has the best name. Well, I, it's funny because I was just looking through my emails um, and I see on March 23rd, 2009, Astro Teller wrote me um, and wanted to meet me uh, March 31st in New York City. And I never responded to him. I probably should have responded uh. to him. <laughs> ah, that's, that's this is why I don't this is why I'm not a Michelle Fon. I just, I never like to meet people. It's so, funny. Did, I mean, why did he want to meet? That's what I'm curious about. Well, he, we, he went to the same graduate school as me. He went to gra graduate school around the same time. And uh, he was a fan of my writing. So he wanted to meet. That's awesome. And then I just, yeah, you never, I, mean, I just never responded. Maybe he wasn't, yeah, maybe he wasn't a rocket scientist at that point, but, uh, but, you know, it's funny. I get emails like that all the time. So, you know, I write a lot you know, for a lot of places. I get get emails like that all the time, and I try to respond, but sometimes I just can't. And and I have wondered the same thing. Am I missing out? Because so many of my, you know, greatest connections have come through the random meetings. But but knowing which is a you know is a tough thing to do. No, it, it's true. Like literally, I've made, and I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I've made millions of dollars because of the emails. I have responded to so and but sometimes mm -hmm. you get so many emails you don't know uh what to respond to and what not to like if 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 you Shane Snow were responding to every email you wouldn't have any time to write and your writing is what benefits let's say tens or hundreds of thousands of people not responding to one person at a time so it's hard to know what what to respond to yeah at the same time I mean we get? uh I I used to I I try but I I Usually I'll try to respond and I'll decline politely the meeting um, and point them to something I've written. It's sort of my strategy. Um, but, I mean, you and I met because of an email that I sent you. Uh, obviously, I've been reading your stuff for a while and uh, I sent you this email. But uh, uh, actually, I'm curious, like, was it what was it about that that uh, that made you interested in this? I, I could be. Well, and this is related it. to another chapter in your book is we know a lot of super connectors in, in common. 
you know, yeah. so 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 for instance, um, and and he's been on this podcast. I'm I'm assuming you know Ryan Holiday. Oh yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I think uh, he, the book, I think actually. he might have even introduced us initially. Although uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember now. He, he may have. Yeah. Well, I think I mean one of the things that I try to do when so I've been on the other side right? uh, as a writer, right? You're always emailing people, pestering them to talk to you, and the best strategy that, and, and I talk about this in the super connector chapter, there's the classic advice on networking, which is, you know, be bold, find the people that you need to get to. It's not what you know, it's who you know, and, you know, make a good elevator pitch and impress the pants off them. Right. That's, that's kind of like what they teach you to do. I took this one networking class in undergrad that that was exactly, they said, make a list of people, call them up and ask them if they'll be in your network. And, uh, and, and that's so sort of needy, right? The, better strategy that you see throughout the history of, in that chapter, I talk about the history of, of uh, radio and, uh, and some other kind of like broadcast, but what you see, the people who are the best at making human connections work for them are the ones that go the other way, where they offer to give, they look for a place where they can find, provide value rather than asking for value. Uh, so, you know, and the, for me, usually how that works is uh I would love to be, so Lifehacker, for example, you know, I wanted them to write about my book. Um, so, you know, I emailed the editor and I said, hey, could I write something for you that's in the line with my book that can help your audience? So, you know, the pitch is, can I give you something that's helpful rather than, uh, than hey, please, please, please listen to me, this one of a thousand authors who have a book this month. Um, I, I think, so I think kind of that's 100% correct. Like all success that I've seen, it's, if you want to meet somebody, you have to provide a hundred percent. You have to provide. It's the ten x thing. You have to provide a thousand percent of the value first to get a hundred percent back, and that's critically important. And I find an even more valuable technique is what I call permission networking. So let's say I wanted to. I wanted to grow my network. I would say, okay, Shane, I'm going to introduce you to this other guy who's going to help you with your book. Is that okay? And you would say, yes. Then I'm going to talk to the other guy and I'm going to say, you really need to meet Shane. He could help you with this. And that guy will say, yes. Then I'll introduce the two of you. Now my network has improved without me mm -hmm. having to meet either person. They'll increase value for each other and my network strengthens. So the next time I really need something, you, you guys are valuable nodes in my network. And that's how you increase the value of a network exponentially in, instead of linearly. I love that. Yeah. And the key, right, is you're not, you're not using your social equity, you know, spending that uh, to hook someone up at kind of like as a favor to someone else. You're making sure that there's mutual value being provided for both of them. And then both of them like you. It's like you level up because of that, even though you're actually making two asks for two people. Right. And the, the, the danger that where you where you burn social equity is if you just introduce the two people without confirming it with either side, because then it's sort of like you right. outsourced the difficulty of meeting to them <laughs> instead of you doing right. anything. And they might not want to or you might be too busy or it might not be good for you. And now it's like, oh, but James just introduced. I've got to respond somehow um, or else I'll lose. Like I've just given you the responsibility. I've just given you the opportunity to lose social equity. And that in, in turn makes me lose social equity. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, even just uh, so I just started this column with Fast Company 
And last week I wrote about uh, kind of following up on the super connector idea. I wrote about uh, 15 people that have different sort of strategies for, for super connecting and, and everything like the, the kooky Venn diagram that we ran with the piece basically is the overlap of connections and generosity. And a generous person does not make more work for someone else. And, and so when you're, when you're connecting people, if you're making work for someone rather than sort of taking work off their shoulders or, or giving them an opportunity, then that's, yeah, I mean, you're depleting your reservoir of your karma is going down, not up. Right. It's, it's funny how, um, how, how important this term from Hinduism is to entrepreneurial success, you know, karma. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, what term? Oh yeah. So, so, so tell me another business story. Let's talk about Andrew Mason. And, and, and so Andrew Mason was the CEO and founder of, of Groupon and whatever anybody thinks of Groupon, a lot of wall street analysts always put it down. Andrew Mason is no longer the CEO, the, the whole, the whole kind of rise and fall of Groupon, but people forget Groupon was the fastest growing revenues company in history. I mean, they went up to like billions in revenues in like two years. So how did how did they hack the system to grow so fast? Yeah, so I actually and I, I got kind of slammed in a, a review uh, with the L.A. Times on this subject recently, which made me smile because in the beginning of my book, I talk about I just throw out there that it took Rockefeller 25 years to make a billion dollars and then it took you know, Bill Gates 12 years, and it took the Yahoo guys three years, and it took Andrew Mason two. Uh, and some of that's inflation, but not all of it. And when you look at the way technology is accelerating and communication is accelerating, those two things are making it so that people can build businesses, follow their dreams, make change, and, and in many cases, get rich faster than before. And Mason and Groupon are kind of the superlative example because they are the fastest in history. Um, so, you know, part of the thing that I grapple with uh, on that question is, yeah, Mason got sacked because he couldn't hang at that level, which I think is actually, it's a little bit unfair to say, to discredit the fast growth of his company and what he did. And he had great mentors, too, that were helping him along the way. It's a little unfair to discredit him for that rise just because he couldn't manage this enormous, gigantic public company. Um, those are two different skill sets. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Groupon kind of rode this wave. So there are a few factors. Groupon rode this wave uh, of kind of the right timing in the market for a service like it. But what they did that I found very interesting and that, that actually speaks a lot to what we do at Contently is they managed to get uh, to grow this very, very interesting viral uh, loop where people, people were opening their emails at a huge, huge open rate. And, you know, the, the thing they were selling was interesting, the coupons and all that, and they, you know, you get your friends to buy the coupons. But I think one of the key things that people overlook with Groupon's rise is they, they got at people directly through the thing that they checked the most, which is their email. Uh, and they got there every day, and they got them to open the emails every day because they hired comedy writers to, uh, to write these sort of fantastical stories about all of the offers. So, you know, I would get these emails for laser hair removal, which I'm not really in the market for. Uh, at this point, uh, and and I would open them anyway because I wanted to know what's the funny thing that they're going to write with this. How are they going to spin this this time? What's the story? So they actually did some brilliant. I didn't know that. Marketing. I didn't know that they had like funny emails. I thought they just had the coupons. Yeah, so they have the coupons, and then they'd always have this story. This uh, yeah, they hired a bunch of Second City comedy writers to uh, to write these hilarious uh, emails, 
And, uh, and so they, yeah, a lot of people would open because of the deal, but a lot of people would open because the content was great. So they became this, I think, often overlooked example of great content marketing. You get people to open the emails, and then, you know, and in many cases, those actually converted higher, but they, they built this incredible relationship with their customer base. Um, and then, you know, they, they had a very good sales team and all of that, but they, they scaled because they got the consumers to build this, uh, this very, very tight relationship with them. Um, and, you know, and the timing was right also with social media. They were, you know, they recognized that the share economy was growing and that people were spending more time uh, getting content from their friends and sharing information with their friends than they were sort of on their own uh, trying to do this content discovery and, uh, and deal discovery and all of that. And so those are, those are kind of the main things that I think are overlooked about the Groupon story. The other thing is behind the scenes there, uh, you have uh, Eric and Brad, who are the, the light bank guys who kind of bankrolled uh, Groupon. And, and they're, I guess, for full disclosure, they're some of our investors. Um, they had built three public companies before, and so they knew exactly what they were doing. They were kind of the, the perfect mentors for Andrew on how do you take an idea that has a good product market fit and then scale it, you know, as fast as possible. So, so there are so, a few factors. So it's interesting. I, I it oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, so, so it's interesting. So the, so Andrew, um, Andrew had one other thing too, which is he had pre, he had a prior success. So he had sold uh, a company, I guess, to Google, uh, Dodge, no, not Dodgeball. Uh, what was the name of his company he sold to Google? Oh, um, I can look it up right now. I'm blanking on it. I'm, I'm going to look it up too. Um, anyway, he sold the company to Google or, or someplace, and he had a prior success. And you mentioned, and this is related to the F word chapter now, you mentioned that a lot of, and I think this is happening really a lot lately. There's almost like this cult of failure where people think it's like good to fail, get it through your system, and then, um, and then that gives you a chance to succeed. Uh, but but you kind of mentioned throughout the book that failure is not necessarily uh, what people th think it is. So and and in fact, much better to trust an entrepreneur who's had a prior success because there's a much more a much more greater chance that uh, uh, his next company will be success. So Andrew Mason already had a successful company under his belt. Right. That yeah. Um yeah, the thing. So the thing with the success and with the fail fast, fail often thing is, there's a good and a bad to it. The good is we need to erase the stigma around trying hard things, right? If we can't take risks and feel like we can go back to our lives not as a, a shame, then then that's bad for progress. But the depressing thing is, is when you look at academic research. Uh, that in the book, I study research from Harvard and from this group called Startup Compass, and then research of uh, heart surgeons, where it shows that people who build companies that are successful are more likely to succeed the second time uh, with their second company. But people who build companies and fail are statistically no more likely to succeed than someone who's never started a company. So you're starting at ground zero. You're not in worse shape, but you're starting at ground zero. And so, you know, the excitement around like, oh, they failed or, oh, they're going to do good this time because, you know, they had learned all these things from this failure uh, from a statistical standpoint is, garbage. And, uh, and that's maybe a little depressing. Um, the thing that, uh, that really caught my attention on this subject, so I dug into all of the, you know, kind of the psychological research on failure and how people take feedback and all of that. When you, uh, there's this great story of these heart surgeons who 
had to learn this new heart surgery, basically uh, reattaching uh, a new tube to the heart because one's clogged. And it used to be that you had to stop people's hearts and then you reattach the tube and then you restart the heart. And that's a really dangerous uh, surgery. But they developed this new method where they could do it while the heart's still beating. So all of these heart surgeons had to learn this new procedure that was pretty tricky. So these scientists followed them around for 10 years and watched these heart surgeons uh, as they learned to do this procedure. And they basically kept tabs on who failed and who succeeded and, and their rates and, and all of that. And what they found is that the surgeons that botched the surgery, uh, you know, fail fast, fail often is great unless it's heart surgery, in which case it sucks. Um, so they, they'd watch surgeons who'd botched the heart surgery and the patient would die. Um, and those surgeons got worse, uh, if anything. They maybe didn't get worse, but they, many of them did get worse. And they didn't get better in subsequent surgeries. But the surgeons that did the heart surgery correctly, uh, they got better and they gradually improved and their success rates went up and, and their patients did much better. What was interesting is the heart surgeons that watched their buddies botch the heart surgery also got better. And, and so what this gets at is this interesting thing about human nature where when we fail, we tend to externalize the reasons for our failure. And I talk about some startup failures that do this in the book too. We tend to say, oh, it was bad luck or it was bad timing or the market conditions or the patient was in bad shape or it couldn't see or, you know, the, the gray hairs that we hired, you know, wanted to do this with the company. And uh, you tend to externalize the reasons for your failure because at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself and with that failure. So you explain your failures in a way that help you live with yourself more uh, love yourself better. So, so, so let, let's you, call it what it is. You blame others for your failures, but you take credit for your successes. It, it, that's exactly. what a loser does, basically. <laughs> exactly. You blame the referee, not your performance. But if you win, right, it's because you, you know, I did this and you analyze your performance and this you know, thing I did was great. Uh, but when you watch someone else fail, you tend to blame them. You tend to look more, scrutinize more closely what it is that they did to screw up. So your buddy, the heart surgeon, fails. You're like, oh, well, he did this wrong, or like he was standing like this, and, and here are the factors. Uh, actually, the flip side of that is when other people succeed, we tend to chalk it up to luck, to, to say, oh, they were lucky, or you know, this happened to them, and boo-hoo for me. Um, but it's this paradox of failure, and that's the reason why most people, when they have setbacks and when they have failures, don't actually learn from them as much as, as they say they will, uh, or as we think we will, because we have a hard time... Uh, taking a, a very good step back look at ourselves critically and what we did wrong rather than sort of what else uh, went wrong externally. Well, I, 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 I'll add to that by saying, you know, if you, so, so given that this is a psychological phenomenon, if you overcome that, well, let's call that the sort of blame disease. If you overcome mm -hmm. that, and, and you mentioned this with Michelle Fon, she would view um, her, her, bad videos or let's say less viewed videos as opportunities to learn. So she didn't blame anybody like, oh, I have a bad camera or the I wasn't feeling well that day or whatever. She wouldn't blame anybody. She would learn from her mistakes. And so so I play or used to play a lot of uh, competitive chess. And there's a saying, only the good players get lucky because everyone else, all the bad players will say, oh, you just got lucky. It always just seemed to be the case that the great players were the ones who were getting lucky all the time. And yeah. the one thing about a great player in chess is they would analyze and learn from their own failures and made a real effort to do that.
Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research that, I, that made it into the end notes because it's so sort of dense and esoteric, but uh, it didn't quite make it into the book. But the, there's, you know, the research shows that negative feedback is more likely to be accepted and applied by someone. Uh, and that negative feedback that helps you improve, which is what you need to improve, uh, if the person has strong self-confidence and emotional maturity. And so what you kind of need to do is, is build up that, uh, that resistance to internalizing, uh, you know, taking the feedback internally, but take, not taking it personally. So one of the parts that I talk about in the book is how the Second City Comedy School uh, pumps out great co comedians, which is a very hard and sort of self-conscious and that's inducing a career to pop out people like, you know, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and Seth Meyers very, very quickly. And they do it by creating this series of escalating uh, environments where if you fail, it doesn't matter. If your joke flops, you're just getting that as notes on the joke and not on the joke maker. Um, and so they, they have this very clever strategy of taking students uh, and building their self-confidence and their emotional maturity so that when something bombs, it's okay. Uh, and actually, it's great because now they're excited to go back and make the joke work next time. Um, whereas you see a lot of comedians have a very hard time because it is a very personal thing. You get up on stage and people don't laugh at your jokes. You feel like shit. And uh, and so that chapter, the, the failure feedback chapter, is all about how do you create sandboxes where you feel like you're allowed to fail, uh, but you're allowed to change the way you look at failure into seeing it more as feedback so that when you're at an operating table or when you're landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier and there's no, like failure is bad or you have a business and failure is not going to help you next time, that you've set yourself up to learn rather than fail. I think this is probably the most important. I mean, there are a lot of important points in the book. Like you give lots of different ways of hacking the ladder, but this is critically important. That moment when you quote unquote fail I would almost revise, I mean, if I'm the individual who wants to succeed, I would revise the entire terminology of what happens next. So instead of like complaining or blaming or getting depressed or feeling bad about yourself, to really view it as an experiment for that next level, to really view that as feedback, instead of saying, um, I'm a failure, saying, you know, try to put one, uh, try to put distance between yourself and the actual thing that failed. So like, oh, my business failed rather than saying I'm a failure or or like in the Second City case, this particular act didn't work instead of saying I'm not funny or I'm a failure as a comic. So I, I think it's or important, like, like you say, to be psychologically healthy. But that takes practice. It's a, it's a muscle that takes practice. Yeah. And, and what I found is that some people naturally have this and I hate them for it, but the rest of us, most of us, we, we do have to have to practice. And I mean, one of the things that was inspiring to me as I wrote this book, I mean, this book was my exercise in, in satisfying my own curiosity because I wanted to do bigger things faster too. But the, the most inspiring thing to me was to see how some of these people who have managed to do this have changed from, you know, kind of the rest of us where we do take things very personally and, you know, and we kind of believe the common advice to people who do think very differently and who have that, uh, that confidence to, you know, to go after the massive things and the maturity to uh, take, you know, the, feed, the failure as simply feedback and as an opportunity to get excited again. Well, well, and I'm going to quote you on specifically on the Second City thing because I, I think every entrepreneur should, and, and everybody who wants to be successful at anything should, should do this. Second City manages to accomplish three things 
to accelerate its performer's growth. One, it gives them rapid feedback. Two, it depersonalizes the feedback. And three, it lowers the stakes and pressure so students take risks that force them to improve. And I think this is this is the whole Thomas Edison thing. Like he didn't fail a thousand times to make a light bulb. He was experimenting, then then getting feedback, then experimenting, then getting feedback until finally he, I don't know, got got light out of a, a light bulb. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one of my favorites is his his contemporary uh, Nikola Tesla. He burned his lab down. You know, he he was the quintessential lateral thinker, invented all sorts of things. I mean, that era was great because being a scientist meant that was going to happen. It was okay for, and it was almost like uh, everyone knew that he's going to get to it. The light bulb, and well, he and his lab, they, they knew like, this is going to happen. We're going to change the world. Uh, they had this incredible optimism um, and, and those setbacks didn't, uh, didn't affect them. And people had a lot of faith in, in that time in, uh, in that scientific progress. I feel like even now, though, I mean, you, you kind of you, you kind of are connecting the dots here in a really good way, which is that, um, you know, I was going to ask you earlier, well, how does one do lateral thinking? And I think I think the answer you just gave is uh, take out the vocabulary word failure and instead view this uh, view. Everything is kind of like this feedback loop that you learn from combined with some decent mentorship, you know, either virtual or real combined with sort of understanding in a very deep level the platform you're working on, like how Michelle Fon did with, with YouTube, how uh, presidents understand, you know, kind of the electoral college and, and the political system better than uh, most of their competitors and so on. Like, you know, it, it's these things that, that give you the lateral thinking. So I know for myself, if I'm trying a business idea and it's very quickly not working, I think to myself, okay, well, how can I could either convert it into something that's working or I sell it or I give it to somebody. So I, I improve my connection with them or, or something. I always try, I'm always try to be in motion correctly or incorrectly. Right. Cause sometimes you can stay at a business for 20 years and then suddenly it works and that's the traditional route. And it, it also works, but I, I like to always be in motion. I think that's, yeah, I think that's crucial. And, and when you look at all of the people that I profile in the book, that's, none of them stick around in one spot for very long. And, and I think that that's uh, telling, right? That a lot of us do think that we, if we wait around or we're loyal or, you know, we pay dues or we, we are patient, that, you know, patience is a virtue, they always say, right? Uh, unless you're trying to change the world, <laughs> in which case uh, patience makes you, you slow and, um, yeah, so I think there's there's definitely something to that. You know, one of the other chapters I talk about pattern recognition, and I, I do it through this couple of stories through pro surfers and electronic music artists. Um, but at the best surfers in the world, uh, they aren't like when you win a competition, you don't win because you have stronger muscles or you've trained more or you're somehow you know slightly more agile than your your competitors. When you get to a certain level, the best surfers in the world win competitions because they show up to the beach early and they watch the waves for hours. Uh, and I think that's, you know, as an entrepreneur, something that's overlooked, like, you know, everyone, we, we work hard, we stay up late, you know, we do all the things, but I think spending time looking at, looking for patterns, uh, watching the waves and, uh, and, you, and thinking, doing the mental work that no one can see for three times as long as, as everyone else is really, 
it's what makes for great surfers, but I think it's also what makes for, for great entrepreneurs and, and people that want to move faster and not be in one spot at, at any time. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, look at yourself. You, you've, you've been a journalist at multiple outlets. Like, it's no longer the case that you need to just rise up, you know, from the copy desk at the New York Times up to columnist, up to maybe editor by the time you're 55 years old or, you know, whatever. You write everywhere. It's kind of like a wall of sound approach. Like, every publication I look at, there's going to be a Shane Snow article. And then you started a company. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's all, I mean... Part of it, I, honestly, I think is entrepreneurial ADD, but for me, it's, it was easier. And when I started out as a journalist, I wanted to write for Wired magazine, and I, you know, I pitched Wired. I've talked about this a lot, but I pitched Wired a feature story, and the editor was nice and said, come back in a few years when you have experience. And so I made it my quest to get into Wired, and over the next six months, I wrote you know, for the next web, and then I pitched uh, Gizmodo, and then I pitched Mashable and writing off of the credibility of these lower publications. From Mashable, I pitched Fast Company and they had Fast Company in print, and then I went back to Wired, you know, six months later, and I said, "Hey, I've written for all of these places. Look at all the credibility I've built up. Will you take a look at my story idea?" And, and Wired published my first story, and, and then I did the same thing to, you know, to start writing print stories for Wired and to get into the New Yorker and the Washington Post, and and all of that. It was credibility to take one step sideways and to start a business in the journalism industry, in the content industry, and convince investors that, hey, I understand this industry and I have all of these smart brands attached to my, you know, my portfolio, you could say. Um, and then using that, I mean, to get the book deal, honestly, it was all of those things. And, hey, I have a company that's growing quickly and I'm talking about companies that are growing quickly. Uh, that was my side step into there. And, you know, I, my, my agent recently was talking about, well, what are we going to do in TV next? And, and I think just not slowing down um, and, and not, not seeing it as a linear path, right? Like each of these are kind of side steps, you know, Gizmodo to Mashable. The, those are different companies that, you know, you could rise directly through the ranks through, or you could be sort of the independent uh, contractor or independent artist and, uh, and have the flexibility to jump around. And, and that actually ends up being building more, I mean, it's it's weird to to say, right? Like out loud, but it ends up building a more impressive sort of uh, profile or, or resume when you get somewhere even younger than than you might have uh, have normally been when you get to that well, point. Well, and you know, and this is this is related not only to the lateral thinking or moving, but also the concept that you call leverage. So once you write for Wired and 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 Gizmodo, you can write the New Yorker and say, "Hey, I've written for Wired and." And Gizmodo, now um, here's here's ten story ideas for you. And then once you have something in these three places, the New Yorker, Life Hacker, Wired, whatever, then you write the publisher and say, "Oh, I've written for all these places. They all have put the stamp of approval on my writing. So now I'm ready to write a book for you." And and you leverage these things one after the other. You might have maybe you had to try ten publishers. Maybe you had to try thirty magazines. I don't know, but. I think it's that quickly, never resting on the laurels, like, oh, now I'm in the New Yorker, I'm going to write for the New Yorker for the rest of my life. Always leveraging right. it into the next lateral move very quickly is very key. Yeah, and you see this in startups, too. Uh, I mean, this is a reason why the smart startups will, you know, you're small, no one knows you, you start selling to, you know, to small customers. So we did this as a B2B startup, start selling to small customers, we put their logos on our website, and no one has heard of the logos. We use that to go to the next tier up, slightly bigger or better customers. And we say, look at these people who trust us. 
we sell those customers and, you know, one out of 30 say yes or whatever it is. But then you put those logos on the website and you go to the next level up, put those logos on the website until, I mean, within eight months at Contently, we were dealing with Fortune 500 brands. You know, as a startup under a year old, that's kind of uh, impossible. And But it's that same idea. You're borrowing the credibility from somewhere else saying, I call this the, the Frank Sinatra thing, where, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you can make it in New York, you can make it, you know, in L.A., and uh, that idea, you see that in a lot of startups. And I mean, this is, this is something that I, I feel like I've stolen from, from other smart startups and, uh, you know, and journalists that have done this in, in that industry. But you can see this everywhere. I mean, yeah, it's, it's I everywhere. About, it's everywhere where there's yeah, yeah. success. I, I don't know of right. a success that doesn't have that. Because in, 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 in copywriting, for instance, it's known as social proof that people are convinced to work with you because they see, oh, these five guys worked with him. Yeah, and who are you going to choose if you're NASA, you know, the company that's working with all of these other, you know, aerospace companies that's two years old or the company that's been in business for 50 years but, you know, doesn't have all of that credibility or isn't rising that fast. You're actually more interested in this company that has come out of nowhere and gotten everyone in the world who's important to, uh, to take a bet on them. That's that momentum yeah. is more impressive thing. Yeah, and you talk about the perception of momentum is more important than – kind of um, the actual numbers. Like I would rather, you know, many people would rather deal with a company that's going from zero to 50 million in revenues than a company that's been at a hundred million in revenues forever. Right. Exactly. Which, I mean, it's counterintuitive, but that's uh, that's the way investors think. That's the reason the markets work the way they do. And I think that can be applied on a micro level to individual companies or individual things that you're trying to do. Uh, or even on a more, you know, more macro scale. Right now, the, you know, there's the big climate march uh, on Sunday here in New York City. And I'm wondering, I, I went, went to it and, and was looking at it under the lens of how are they going to keep this momentum going? So great, they have a 400,000 people turnout. How are they going to make the next thing appear like it's getting bigger and bigger? Because if they can do that, then they can get a lot of attention. But if they don't, then it's just another, you know, protest. And so I, I think that concept of momentum uh, has uh, you know has a lot of legs in a lot of other sort of categories. So so I want to go in a slightly different direction, which is um, the guy or or woman in a cubicle who who has been paying the dues, but sees that look, the co corporation I work for is not necessarily loyal to me. I have other interests and passions. I kind of would like to do what Shane is talking about. I have interests. I have other things. Um, you know, cause you talk a little bit about this, uh, in terms of the guy who started, uh, Ruby on rails, the programming environment, Ruby mm -hmm. on rails. And, you know, he, he kind of hacked the system by saying, you know, with, he says specifically with 5% of the effort of somebody getting an A, I can get a C minus. So meaning he'll put in one twentieth of the effort. And he'll still graduate school, but that gives him 95% extra free time. And I think this is a critically important thing to know for the person in the, in the cubicle who feels stuck or trapped by an overwhelming um, need for their time, and they don't know how to get around that. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons the book isn't called Shortcuts is because shortcuts kind of by definition can be amoral or they can have this like cutting corners feel to it. You know, the thing about David uh, Hansen in, in that chapter is he didn't take his 95% of free time and then go, you know, smoke pot on the beach. 
he took that and he used it to build something that got him somewhere quicker. You know, he used it to build a business. Um, so for, you know, for the person who's stuck, and I think I, I had this, you know, this cubicle person in mind and actually some people in my own life in mind uh, when I wrote this, that all of us at some point reach this inevitable plateau uh, if we're sort of going about life the way that we're, we're conventionally told to. And, and most businesses reach that plateau after a few years. And so, you know, for that person, I think there, there's, you know, there's a lot of choices there, right? I would say if it's the institution that is keeping you from progressing, then, uh, then you know, move somewhere else, right? Like quit. Um, but there's this idea of uh, kind of like the, the four-hour work week, which I think everyone on the planet has read, of seeing how you can minimize what it takes to, di- to get the minimal results to sort of pass and then use that extra time to work on the side project that interests you. The side project in the four-hour work week might be traveling the world. The side project for someone who's stuck in an office might be uh, a business they're working on. It might be, you know, a job hunt. Um, it might be, you know, going out on their own. I and mean, one of the things that's really interesting now is the freelance economy, where it's so uh, such a huge percentage of workers in America are contractors now. And that is a scary thing because you have to be an entrepreneur and you have to do your own taxes and all that. But it's also a very liberating thing where you can build up your own work and kind of make your own way uh, on the side of whatever you're doing until kind of the seesaw tips and and you can survive on your own. I know a lot of people that uh, that have done this kind of idea. You feel like you're stuck. So, you you know, you still could do a good job, but don't, you know, uh, like do the, the David Hansen thing. So that you can write your book on the side, or so you can uh, you can start building the company on the side. The other thing too is I think inside big companies don't want this advice spreading around. They don't want people to quit. They want to retain their talent. What big companies need to do is they need to set up their employees to have small wins that can motivate them and give them a sense of progress. Uh, and that creating that environment where you know, employees can have you know small wins for progress and also the latitude to question things about the business or about their job or their industry to ask the questions that lead to lateral thinking. I think that's crucially important. And uh, and, and when I say that, Oh, go ahead. Oh no. I, I just think it's interesting that, you know, p- part of that though is a mindset thing. So in order for an employee to succeed at a company, he has to be able to say we instead of them and me. So he has to, right, like when right. I worked at HBO, it was like, how can we be better as a company? Even though I was a low-level employee, I had to say, how can HBO be better and almost internalize what HBO was as a company? And they did give me a chance to have many small wins, and I and I credit them for that. But I also did the hack the system approach where I did the minimal amount of work and to, to, to achieve enough success to do well there, but also... On the side, I completely started a company for for 18 months. I had a company on the side, and finally, when I had, a, I think I had around 11 employees, I, I jumped ship and joined my own company full time as CEO. That's great. Well, the common advice you get, right, is go the extra mile, put in the overtime, and hope someone recognizes it so you get a promotion. Well, it turns out that's the slow way. If you put in the sufficient amount of work and then go the extra mile sideways, you know, work on the thing that you're not supposed to work on, maybe inside your company, work on the project that will sort of be, you know, like all the stories of 3M, right? Like the post-it note was invented by the guy in his side time. You know, work on those sorts of things that can help you sort of skirt that line that's based on how many people are in front of you, right? And either internally or externally, that's the idea. 
but, but we have this advice so ingrained that like, no, if you want to be successful, just work hard. Just work so hard and put in so many hours and then cross your fingers that someone recognizes it. That's, uh, that's tough because it just doesn't happen that often. It's not appreciated as often as, uh, as you would think. And as much as you, know, you shouldn't slack on the job, but you're not going to be rewarded for going the extra mile unless you're doing it in a creative way. So let's take like a random field like, um, you know, we've talked about entrepreneurship. We've talked about, you know, book publishing a little bit. Uh, We've uh, talked about a couple different cases of entrepreneurship. What about something like if somebody wants to be an actor, how how would you recommend they go about hacking the ladder? Ah, so this one is actually, did you read my piece in The Observer where I, I wrote a little bit about my acting adventure? No. When did you write it? I, you know, I write for The Observer. Ah. Oh, cool. It was. Uh, it came out the same week as uh, as my book, so two weeks ago now. So I okay, I didn't read it. Did, did Ryan Holiday hook you up to the Observer? Because uh, that that's how I yeah. met the Observer. He, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny. Um, See, super connectors. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's such a small world. Um, so when I first moved to New York City, I kept seeing them film Law and Order on my block. I, was, I lived in Midtown, and then one day I literally bumped, shoulder, bumped my shoulder into Tina Fey's shoulder while they were on a shoot for 30 Rock. So I said, okay, I should figure out how to become an extra because, you know, I want to sort of skip out on my homework for a little while and I was bored. So, uh, so I signed up at a casting agency and they cast me as an extra in a few shows. So I showed up to Gossip Girl and showed up to Law and & Order. And I asked my fellow extras, because being an extra blows basically, like you stand around for 13 hours and then they kind of, you're a human prop and... You can see in the Fashions Night Out episode of Gossip Girl on season four, I think me holding a glass of fake wine while Chuck Bass kisses a French girl, and I stood for 13 hours. Anyway, so I, I, uh, yeah. so I asked my fellow extras, well, how do you get out of this? Like, how do you go from this, you know, being the guy holding a glass of wine to the guy kissing the French girl in the foreground of the shot? And, uh, and they said, well, okay, so here's the advice. What you do is you try and angle yourself so that you're in the director's view. You know, you position yourself so the camera gets you. Do a really good job. And, uh, and if the director decides that they need to write in a small speaking part, like the waiter needs to say something, then maybe they'll pick you. And if that happens a couple of times, then you can get your Screen Actors Guild card, and then you can start uh, moving on to, to bigger roles. So I was like, okay, well, how often does this happen? And they're like, well, I've seen it happen a couple times. And okay, said, well, so this is the ladder, that? for instance, that you need to yeah. hack. Right. And, and they and I yeah, asked them, well, how long have you been doing this? And they said, oh, a couple of years. So okay, in two years, you've seen this happen to two people, and there are hundreds of extras. So clearly, that's the stupidest advice ever. Right. The, the common career advice that you get as an actor is. Maybe not that dumb, but it's pretty similar where you, you get on the ladder, you audition for very small parts, uh, you work hard at them, you audition for more small parts, and eventually you audition for bigger and better parts. And people hustle in this industry, and they do work very, very hard you know, for decades, a lot of times before they get their break. Some of the most fast-rising actors, one of two things happens. They come in and they just have a look that is needed. So uh, Jennifer Lawrence, you know, she comes in as a... a teenager, right? And, uh, and she has a look that they need. Someone spots her on the street and she auditions and she's naturally talented and great. She's in. And she, she clearly deserves every bit of success that she had in it. It would have been a shame if she'd have spent 20 years, you know, doing this extra thing, trying to work her way up to big roles. So that's one way it happens. And a lot of people chalk that up to looks and luck and, and whatever, but there's, there's some merit there. The other way it happens 
is the way that Zoe Saldana became an actor, which is she became a well-known ballerina. So she, she got very good at ballet, and then she auditioned for a role in a film that needed a ballerina. And you can't, me the extra, I'm not going to get that role as the ballerina, but famous ballerina, or she wasn't even famous, but very good ballerina will. So she jumped over into acting after having not paid any of these dues. She did a great performance, and then suddenly she was making you know, award-winning films. Uh, same thing happened, you know, with The Rock, you know, love him or hate him, you know, he was a pro wrestler and then he came in to do these roles where they need the big muscular guy. And, uh, and you know, I, I love Fast and the Furious and, and, and all of those. So you see that kind of very similar to the president in acting. You see someone gain skills in one industry and then cross over into the other and use those unique skills to provide some unique value to that industry that surpasses the value that everyone else who's sort of backed up in line doing the very same thing uh, can provide. And, and it's just sort of waiting for luck. It's interesting because I sort of call that uh, in, in, in one phrase is idea sex, where you have uh, an idea in one area and an idea in another area, but you become a master of the intersection. And that's ultimately uh, the key to a lot of a lot of success. I you love know, so- that idea sex. You know, so like Groupon is a great example where, you know, they they were, were really good at email marketing and then combined that with couponing, essentially, local couponing. Right. right. Yeah. You know, I, and I think that that pattern holds, right? You have the outsiders come in or you turn an industry inside out. It, it's I think that pattern holds almost anywhere you see a breakthrough. So there's so much valuable information. I really, you know, your book, actually, your book and Zero to One by Peter Thiel remind me a lot of each other where there's, it's it's really well written, very smooth read. Like it's not dense with a lot of um, hard to read research. You, you put that more in the notes and so on. You interweave a lot of uh, stories, both personal and kind of, um, you know, experiences of others. And you have a lot of just practical advice that people can follow. Uh, plus, many of the ideas, you know, many of the ideas in your books are a little similar. There's some overlap in the ideas between your book and, and Zero to One by Peter Thiel, like the 10x thinking and and so on. So I, I, I enjoyed that part as well. Um, and seeing two di- completely different approaches to it, though. So, so I was mm, go ahead. Yeah, I was happy to. So I ended up getting to interview Peter for his book launch uh, up here in New York uh, on stage. And uh, and that was, I think, part of why they, they picked it. But I was, I was tickled by, you know, I read his book early by how much uh, his whole thing is that if, if we want to change the world, we have to think differently than we thought last time. And that's very much a theme of what I wrote. And I, I love that, you know, if these ideas can tickle, and, and I did write a very different book. It's very much, you know, narrative and sort of spans history. And his is very much focused on, you know, on building a business right. uh, from the VC angle. And I feel like... Uh, I would love to see a movement towards more of this, let's question, you know, everything about the way business is done so that we can make more progress and, and not just in business, but in society. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, Peter's obviously had a lot more success under his belt than, than I have, but I'm hoping that uh, that we'll see more content like this come out. Well, but also you, you, you're, you're much younger than him and you leverage, uh, to use your phrase, you leverage the success of the many people you write about, hence the more narrative uh, writing in the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You know, so so again, so so I highly recommend it. It's um, I'm trying to find the full title. I just know it is Smart Cuts, but it's Smart Cuts, How Hackers, Innovators and Icons Accelerate Success. And 
I just kept seeing so many examples that I know of when you were describing the examples in the book. Like, I really agree with everything you say in this book. So it's by Shane Snow. Shane, thanks so much for coming on to my podcast. I really appreciate it. And I really recommend people get the book. In fact, um, pretty soon, I don't know if um, it'll be before or after this podcast comes out, but I'm going to do a big giveaway of my favorite books from the podcast. And this book's going to be included. So, awesome. so I really thank appreciate you. it. Thanks again. Hey, it's my pleasure, James. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and thank you for having me. Thanks, Shane. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.